Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The philosopher Lewis Mumford said that every generation revolts against its fathers and makes friends with its grandfathers, and that has certainly been the case in my own life. I love my dad, but I grew up really idolizing my grandfather and the whole World War II generation he was a part of. In fact, my admiration for that generation was a huge part of what inspired and continues to inspire the art of manliness. You know, the mission of AOM has been to bring back some of the best values of our grandparents' generations that got lost at the end of the 20th century. According to the historian and demographer Neil Howe, there's a reason millennials tend to identify more with the greatest generation than with baby boomers. In fact, there's a whole pattern that generations and history itself cycles through again and again, much like the changing of the seasons. In the 1990s, Howe, along with his co-author William Strauss, published two books, Generations and the Fourth Turning, which set out a bold and fascinating theory, that history can be broken down into four phases and four generational archetypes that repeat themselves over and over every 80 years. What are the characteristics of that generational archetype you belong to? What historical phase are we in now? And what does the Strauss-Howe theory predict is likely to happen to the geopolitical and economic landscape in the next decade? Stay tuned for the answer to these questions and much more. This is an utterly fascinating podcast you definitely won't want to miss. You'll be talking over with your friends and family. After the show is over, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash how, that's H-O-W-E, for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Neil Howell, welcome to the show. Oh, well, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show because I'm a big fan of your work. We've referenced... uh, two of your books, Generations and The Fourth Turning, on the site several times. Um, it's all about this generational approach to history. Um, and before we get into the details of your, your theory and your co-author's theory, let's talk about um, how you came up with this or how you went down this path. You, know, you and your co-author, William Strauss, have become known for your work on generational cycles in American history. You're also the individuals who coined the word millennials that has become part of the cultural zeitgeist. Um, so what led you to down this path of approaching history and sociology from a cyclical perspective? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. We, we did not, you know, Bill and I, uh, this is really in the late 80s when we were kind of looking at this. Uh, it, it was not actually originally our intention to, to be cyclical. Um, we, we were simply interested in some of the huge, you know, generational shifts that we've seen in our time. 
uh, particularly with you know the boomers as a generation, how they how they're so different from their parents. You know the 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 GI generation, the famous um, the greatest generation. You know they had D Day and boomers had Woodstock, and uh, the same age our our parents were building battleships and founding families. Boomers are keeping our hold on keep keeping our our, our lives on on hold. Right? I mean, you can think about it. Um, uh, you know, taking voyages and inside themselves, exploring uh, new kinds of uh, exploring values and cultural space, uh, very much uh, revolutionizing the culture. All of these uh, focus utterly unlike right the the generation that raised us had, but it got us to thinking about just broadly about these kinds of generational shifts throughout American history. And, and we simply went back in time and looked at these. We were simply interested in just how, how it happens. We weren't interested in a cycle. Um, and as we went back and looked, though, uh, we saw certain patterns, certain kinds of generations following others uh, that seemed to recur time and time and again. And these patterns were linked to some of the broader kind of, uh, you know, systole, diastole of, of history that, you know, we're all familiar with. It, the, the kind of most obvious is some of the great, uh, you know, nation-forming, shaking uh, uh, yeah, uh, crises, uh, where, you know, outer world crises where we kind of reconstruct, you know, politics and empire and, uh, and the economy and so on occur about once every long human lifetime. And a lot of people have remarked on this. You, you go back and you look at the, uh, you know, the, the, the war of Spanish succession and the, the, the glorious revolution right around, you know, the end of the, of the uh, uh, 1600s or in 1700. And you, you go forward sort of a, a human lifetime. You get to the American revolution, you get to the civil war, you get to, you know, world war two and the great depression, you get, you get to kind of where we are today, and roughly half in between, halfway in between these turning points, you have the great awakenings of American history, which have been often expressed in in, in religion, you know, uh, uh, in spiritual life, but also throughout the culture generally. And in fact, many historians call the the late '60s and '70s America's fourth or fifth great awakening. These are these are patterns that are really linked in our view to the coming of age and the and the 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 coming of age of different kinds of generations and that just gives you a broad look this is not i guess this is something that emerged from our investigation it's not something we set out initially to show okay and and how does this approach to history differ from the way most historians view history well, most historians, it's interesting. When we wrote Generations, it, it, it's a, it's a, we, we called it a history of America's future. We wrote uh, sequential biographies of, of collective biographies of generations going back, you know, all the way into the, you know, back in the 17th century. Um, and we wrote, the way we wrote it is really interesting. And we were, kind of amazed that no one had written history this way before. What we did is we you know, started, I think, in that book at least, we've started at other points with other books, but in that book we started with the 
the, the so-called Puritan generation, you know, the first large migration of, uh, you know, old world settlers onto the new world and the, and the, you know, the great migration, particularly to New England in the 1630s and, and also to the Chesapeake a little bit earlier. But the, the idea is we took a single generation, a group of people born over about 20 years or so and have a distinct location in history. And we, we told the story of their, their childhood you know, coming of age with, you know, courtship or war or whatever happening to do, the phase in which they're rising to power, raising families, their leadership years, and then finally into their old age. And we, we looked at that as a single collective biography. We, we followed that group throughout their life, and then we went back and we started with the next group in childhood. So one way of looking at this, if you think about history as a, as a, uh, a chart, you know, you think about if age is the y-axis and um, years are the x-axis, right? We all live a diagonal, right? We all have a diagonal line, right? We grow older as time goes forward, right? And this is what we were doing. We were taking each diagonal and then we're starting with the next diagonal, right? And we kept on, it's kind of like Emile Littre, who was a famous uh, French social writer in the, in the mid-19th century, said the generations are like tiles on a roof, right? You can kind of see that pattern, right? And any single event in time is, is a vertical line through all those diagonals, which means that the same war that I may experience as a young cadet or soldier coming, you know, coming of age or participate in, the next generation sees as children. And they probably will have a very different view of that war and internalize a very different understanding of what it means uh, and what lessons you can draw from it. And, and so that is how we do history and, and required a lot of work. I think Bill and I spent, the two of us spent at least three years on that first book because we had to kind of reconstruct history the way people don't ordinarily see it. If you if you look at it, most books, almost all of, you know all, all books of history that we read, it tends to talk about what everyone's doing in every year, right? Oh, 1856, right? What, what were Americans doing that year? <laughs> well, you know, all these different things. Then you go to the next year, right? Well, you might have a and, and usually you focus on what people in midlife are doing because they tend to be the the leaders, right? You might have a, uh, a history of childhood, which each year you're talking about what 18-year-olds are doing, or 12-year-olds, or whatever. No one bothers much to connect, as they're moving forward in time, the narratives of the same people. You see where I'm coming from here? It's just a, uh, it seems obvious to us that in some important way, that is the way you want to tell history. You want to follow the same people over time. And that's what we do. Exactly. So, I mean, I guess one difference is like it's, I guess most historians, they approach history from a very linear perspective because they're just focusing on that one, you know, the midlifers, right? The leaders. And that's all they focus on. It exactly. kind of shows history sort of this linear progression. It's always getting better or it's well, following this determined well, they don't, path. And, the, and it really, yeah, it, it means you're, you really don't have any way of explaining what happens next. Because you're you're just dealing with this one age bracket, and there are always new people moving into it. So you know how that can you predict anything? Um, and and we we see this constantly. Everyone is taking an age bracket, uh, making linear projections on it from whatever they've seen in the recent past, and assuming those will continue. That's never a good way, never an accurate way to look at the future. 
Um, I mean, a good example of that, I mean, you know, you mentioned millennials earlier. We made a number of predictions when we first, you know, introduced millennials as little kids uh, back back in our first book. This was really in the early 90s, right? Um, no one was talking about millennials then. In fact, no one was even talking about Generation X then. <laughs> Gen X at that time didn't even have a name yet, right? Um, Doug, Doug Copeland's book, uh, novel Generation X, came out about a year later. But it was the interesting thing. We we saw clearly what was happening to young adults in the early '90s. You know, we looked at their culture. We looked at how they're looking at life. I, if you many many of your, your listeners will recall that that was a time at which uh, the um, the crime rate was reaching its own you know, near its all-time historical peak. It was still rising of the crack epidemic. We had, um, uh, which would peak in around 1994, uh, you know, the murder rate and all kinds of serious violent crime. Kids were all wearing black. You know, the, the popular uh, pop music genres were probably, you know, grunge and uh, gangster rap, right? And... There's a certain image of youth that was, you know, later stereotyped as Generation X, which was extreme risk-taking, a very dark view of the future, uh, kind of culturally alienated, alienated from their parents. There was the whole sort of anti-work, anti-achievement ethic, which became known as slacker, which is kind of ironic for a generation that later go on to <laughs> work harder than anybody, right. you know, trying to keep up in a, in, a, in a bad economy. But here's the interesting thing. If you had talked to people at that time about where young adults were going from the vantage point of the early 1990s and just drew straight lines, which is what people were doing, people were predicting super predators on American streets by the year 2000. You need an armored car to go downtown, right? In other words, everyone is drawing these straight lines, right? Um, everything would get edgier. Every, everything would get... Uh, we, we would kind of disassociate as a society because everyone thought this extreme individualism would continue. Families would dissolve. Um, it, it, was a, it was an interesting way to look, look at the future back then. So here's what happened. Of course, that didn't happen. We, meanwhile, looked at millennials, the generation coming after them who were being raised as little kids in the 1980s. And we saw that starting in the early 1980s, the style of child nurture in America completely changed. I mean, the radical shift. Um, there's suddenly a moral panic over children. This is the time when, you know, the baby on board stickers and the, and the minivans and all the little, all the child-friendly gadgets. And the culture was turning toward cuddly baby movies instead of child devil movies. You know, everything was changing for, for, for little kids. And that change began to age with them as we moved into the 1990s. We looked back in history and we saw, did we ever see this kind of dark to bright sudden shift in the style of childhood nurture? And, and the answer is yes, we've seen it before. We saw something similar around the year 1900. We, we've seen it before in earlier eras. And we thought we knew what the result of that would be, right? We, we've looked at that generational shift before. And the result we saw, we thought, would be a very different kind of generation who would be coming of age by the late 1990s. So we made a number of predictions. We said, this new millennial generation, when they begin to move into their late teens and early 20s, you know, late 90s, you know, and, and uh, early 00s, 
we said that they personal risk taking would decline, the crime rate would come down, these kids would be much closer to their parents. They'd all think of themselves as special, which is part of the reason they wouldn't take as many risks. They'd be more achievement-oriented, and they'd be hugely more community and, and peer-oriented. And, of course, that gave rise to trends that we predicted, which would transform IT, which is the rise of social media. Now, I don't think anyone recalls back in the early OOS how alien the, the very word, social, the term social media was to older generations. It's like, what's social about that, you know? I mean, uh, we all go on the Internet with avatars and just do whatever the hell we want, you know? You know, what's social about it? Well, it took millennials to come along and show us how, how that can become uh, a sort of infrastructure for a very new sense of sharing everything, uh, total transparency about your life, having your friends like look at everything you do. And to some extent, I think today, when we look at millennials, we worry about almost the opposite things that we worry about with Generation X, right? We worry about where's their grit, you know? Uh, they're... they're they're sharing everything. They have no more individualism. Where are we going to get leadership? Where are we going to get creativity? No one worried about those pauses, you know, uh, back with boomers and Xers. Um, and it's interesting, of course, how we always worry about what the rising generation does not have. We so rarely reflect on what the generation, the rising generation has that those of us who were older did not have, right? So we, we generally don't look at the positive. We generally tend to focus on the negative. Right. Well, that's, that's fascinating. And let's, let's, so let's get in the nitty gritty. So of how you and Bill were able to make these predictions about millennials. Cause as you said, the reason you're able to do that, cause you saw something similar in America's past, a similar pattern of sort of this dark angsty generation followed by an upbeat sort of social conformist do-gooder generation. Um, so, you know, the idea of your theory you is that, you, oh, go ahead. You, yeah. Well, you could have predicted that. I think you could have a, if you had truly looked at who these millennials were as kids, and you kind of ref- and you just simply reflected on what how that would manifest itself as those traits got older, you know, a generation raised to be super special, close to their parents, all of trusting their parents, you know, wanting to trust big institutions like government to protect them and take care of them. But you could have predicted it had you not known history. It's just history gives you it. Um, uh, it 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 uh, uh, it gives you an added degree of confidence. I mean, having seen it before truly does help. Uh, it it um, uh, gives added uh, maybe confirmation is the word you say. Okay. Um, so th- the way you guys approach your theory is that you look at a, a time frame um, about the period, like you said earlier, period of a long life, which is roughly eighty to one hundred years, and you call it a saculum. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, saculum. Yeah. Saculum. Okay. And those who, <clears throat> and those, it, who, those who still go to, to uh, Latin mass, you know, um, saculum saculorum. So it, you know, it's right there in the Catholic Church. It's a, it's a, um, it's a Latin word that means long human lifetime. It, it probably comes from Etruscan. It's very interesting. It, it, we don't really know where the origin of that word is, but, but it is, um, it is, it is a, it is a key unit to, to what we do. Okay, so the saculum, yeah, because you can see, you know, these, you know, different generations at different points in their life all at the same time. So you can see a generation in childhood, a generation in young adulthood, a generation in midlife, and a generation in elderhood. So, yeah. Um, and so then you divide 
a saculum into what you call turnings, four turnings. Um, what's a turning and what are the four kinds that we regularly see um, in a saculum throughout history? Well, I think, you know, looking at that kind of structure, we, we you know, I, I discussed briefly earlier this idea that there, that the, that the entire cycle has two um, kind of two sort of uh, polar ends. You might think of them in, in seasons of the year, this would be kind of the winter and the summer. And one is this period where we reconstruct our outer world of institutions. And these are the periods when we have dramatic changes in public history. You know, we think of the great wars, the total wars, the civil wars, the reconstruction of our economy and infrastructure and so on. Those, those are the what we call fourth things. And then at the other end, these great awakening periods where we reconstruct the inner world of culture, values, art, and so forth, uh, religion. These are the these are what we call the second turnings. So a second turning is an awakening. A fourth turning is a crisis. And uh, in between, we have two other periods, um, and and together they make the four seasons of of the saculum. The first the first turning we call a high. You know, like the American high. And this is simply a period which is, you know, comes after a crisis. And it's typically a period when institutions uh, are strong, individualism is weak, uh, society feels a strong sense of, of uh, collective progress. Um, you know, this is when the, the whole idea of the modern is rediscovered. And, and um, you know, we, we feel like we're moving forward to, you know, ever, you know, greater heights of sort of public achievement, even if... You know, individuals and minorities don't really feel that they can any respect in these periods. Uh, the second turning and awakening is when we people tire of that social conformity and that lockstep progress. They want to throw all that, all those social obligations off, rediscover themselves, rediscover a new sense of authenticity. Typically, fired. This is you know the cutting edge is always the rising generation of youth. This has been true for all of the great religious awakenings as well. Uh, you know, throwing off the glacier age of religion or, you know, whatever their, uh, you know, stolid parents had built. And this is a period of great tumult. Um, you know, the the society still is supplying a lot of social order, but suddenly the people don't want that social order anymore. <laughs> so this becomes a very stormy period, these awakening periods. And um, history shows that, you know, these awakenings, you know, issue then into the third turning, which is what we call an unraveling. Um, and I should say, obviously, the second turning most recently in American history would be, certainly include the late 60s and 70s, perhaps, a, you know, the early 80s as well. And this is, this is our most recent awakening era, sort of that whole consciousness revolution period with all the great, um, you know, the movements, the crusades, whether it was for you know, feminism or the, or the, or the environment or, uh, certainly, uh, movements celebrating racial pluralism and ethnic pluralism. The great just splitting up, right? We no longer became so much the cohesive society anymore, but we came a society that we felt was more fused with sort of individual enthusiasm and people feeling great about their own lives, even if they no longer felt very great about where the country was going. The third turning is is kind of the sequel to that. Um, you think of first turnings following crises, well, they take the lessons of the crisis. You've got to band together and 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 build things together, you know, to keep safe. 
The third training takes the lesson of the recent awakening, which is you have to atomize and become individuals to truly, um, to truly thrive. And the third training is a time when individualism is triumphant and institutions are weak and discredited. Uh, you go into, in, in many ways, we still are living in some, in some ways, a third turning social mood. You go into a bookstore today and you look at all of the most positive, upbeat books, you know, in, in your local bookstore, and they're all about me, myself, and I. I can do anything. I can try. Everything is about me. And I, I'm just great. Whatever yeah. I want, I can do. Like Eat, Pray, Love type stuff. Books. Excuse me? Like Eat, Pray, Love, that memoir of the lady who, like, traveled the world and ate good it's food. Whatever it is. I mean, just look at the whole self-development movement about how, you know, if I try, if I if I if I try hard enough, I can, you know, I can do anything, right? But it's, it's a celebration of self, a very positive one that we got really coming that so much thrived and grew in the third turning, whereas everything about who we are collectively, the books are all downbeat. You know, it's the end of society, the end of family, the end of politics. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, you really do get this mood when you go in and just peruse kind of what's out there. No one has anything positive to say about who we are collectively, right? Well, that's not, you know, look, history isn't always like that. You, you can't have a continuous trend forever in which social life is continuously discredited, right? And individualism is continually championed. Uh, ultimately, that leads into, a, you know, off the precipice, right? We don't, we forget that. We, we often draw straight lines given our recent experience and we don't realize society has to regenerate. It can't just go in one direction all the time, right? Right. And, and to some extent, this millennial generation, I think, is bringing back a lot of these social values, right, uh, that, that bother a lot of older generations. But, but this, is how this, this, this is how this works. This is how this process of renewal works. But, but so you see these third turnings like the 1990s, earlier decades, earlier third turning decades would have been the 1920s. Uh, the 1850s, the 1760s, these are all decades of cynicism and bad manners. You know, a lot of people with attitude, a lot of people acting out. Um, my favorite, uh, my, my, um, my, my, my favorite slogan of the nineties, which is really given a lot of uh, run by, uh, by, by generation X coming of age was, uh, was, uh, it works for me. <laughs> I love that expression. Yeah, it works for I really don't care if it works for you, but it works for me. You know, I feel pretty good about that. So this this is third turning. Okay. History says is that third turnings always ultimately issue into fourth turnings. And fourth turnings remember third turning is when people don't want any social order, but unlike an awakening, no one's offering any social order either. So we all feel great as free agents. And it's a time when actually the level of social strife is actually reduced compared to what it was in the awakening because we're all pretty comfortable with a very individualized world. In a fourth turning, you have a radical shift. No, no order is being offered anymore, but suddenly people want order again. You know, people feel lost. Their lives feel uh, rootless. They feel no one feels protected. No one feels secure. And this leads into the fourth turning social mood, which, which is when we tear down institutions, which are now regarded as completely dysfunctional, and we replace 
we put new institutions to replace them. And these are, um, as I suggested before, this is when this is when public history moves really fast. It suddenly matters now what goes on in the headlines of newspapers or, you know, a web, a news websites, as it may be. And, and we really follow what happens in our, in our central institutional life. These are the great, the great economic emergencies. And, you know, the sobering reflection, but all of the total wars in American history have always been fought in fourth turnings. Uh, these are the time when, when we really do take on a huge public task. It tends to get bigger rather than smaller. And we used to we ordinarily invest it with uh, maximal public energy. Right. And these are sobering times. And in the fourth turning, we talk a lot in detail about the typical pattern of a fourth turning, how it starts. We talk about the catalyst, the regeneracy, the, re- the rebirth and refining of social trust, and ultimately moving toward the climax and resolution. There's a lot that can be learned by looking at these eras, which are very distinctive and very generational, dis- generationally distinctive. Um, so there, there you go. And of course, as I'm sure you're going to mention, for each of these turnings, there's a different pattern of generations that are moving into different phases of life. Exactly. So just to recap, let's kind of uh, um, you talk, like apply this, and you've kind of done it throughout uh, your explanation. Uh, so just like recent history, sort of these cycles. Um, so you mentioned earlier, like the 20s was sort of this unraveling, lots of hyper-individualism. You had the the rise of like the lost generation, Hemingway, Fitzgerald. And, and also, yeah, and also a, a very bad quote-unquote edgy culture you know this is the rise of the age of jazz which at that time was considered um you know the equivalent of pornography today it was absolutely shocking to older people and you had the great migration out of the south obviously in the harlem renaissance but it gave rise to jazz which popular across america you know all right everyone loves this kind of thing the interesting too how african-american culture has resonated with these turnings that's a that's a whole subject in and of itself. But you know, as, as we as we saw with with say something like the rise of hip hop in the nineties, <laughs> the rise of the rise of jazz in the twenties, and and what happened to jazz? What happened to jazz in the thirties? You know what happened to it? It didn't go away, but its most popular form morphed in the hands of the rising GI generation into big band music, swing music. So the, the the music became bigger, more collegial, kind of happier, and more orchestrated. Until finally, by the World War II, you had, um, you know, you had, uh, you know, the Glenn Miller bands, right? I mean, you had the, you know, that kind of sound, right. which is the kind of sound that boomers remember as kids after the war. But I, I often reflect on that when I think of, of how hip hop has changed now, as it's sort of generationally moving on, I often remark, a lot of us who recall hip-hop in its early days, we sort of look at it today and we wonder, where's the, where's the desperation? Where's yeah. the edge? Where's the where's edge? Where's survivalism? Yeah. It's all gone now. No you know? new world um, order. Right. The, well, it's the, it's, the, it's the blanding of the pop culture in the hands of millennials. So. Okay. All right, so yeah, we had the, uh, the 20s, the unraveling, that third turning, and then um, the Great Depression hit set off a crisis in America, um, which, you, as you said, um, calls, you know, there's this, this rapid mobilization of society wanting to work together. And that's exactly what happened with, like, with the New Deal, right? So we're in that fourth turning. And then World right. War II also happened there. And again, another 
they went from very individualized to very collective. Like we're we're the home front. We're all in this together. We got through the crises, and I guess the after the crises would be the first turning, which is sort of the high. So like the 1950s, yeah. everything's bland. Everything's and, and early, yeah, in late 40s, 50s, early 60s. That's all. That's all American high. Right. Yeah. And that's the kind of the thing we nostalgize, right? We're like, oh, those are the days, right? That was that's yeah, the classic, right? You know, the, the vintage. We often use the word vintage to talk about that. Right. Uh, but then um, after that, starting in the late 60s or mid-60s into the 70s, you had the awakening. So this is where you said the, right. the, the, the consciousness movement, rise of feminism, the hippie movement, um, this sort of self-actualization that the boomers brought on, um, which totally. followed uh, the unraveling, which began maybe the late 70s into the 80s. Um, so yeah, as you said, sort of, again, atomizing our culture. People are more individualistic, more risk-taking, et cetera. Um, and so... We're at this point now. The, according- big, the big, the big difference. No, this is excellent the way you're going through it. I think one of the big differences when we hit the when the by the time we hit the late '80s, is that that the individualism was ratified by the larger culture. It was no longer fighting institutions anymore. And remember, it was Ronald Reagan who finally brought the Beach Boys to the White House. <laughs> People <laughs> don't remember that that until then. Rock music was considered, for, you know, it was almost like a communist conspiracy. I mean, in, official institutions did not accept that culture, right? And suddenly, they, we embraced it, even at the highest level. Suddenly, rock music was legitimized at the very height of our institutions. And the other thing Reagan did, which is one of the reasons why he got lots of boomers ultimately you know, voting for him in, in 1980 and particularly in 1984 when he won an alliance fly is that he's basically said, well, what do you expect in an era when we're, we're, we're sort of saying you don't need institutions to run our lives? You remember his famous remark, you know, government isn't the answer. Government is the problem, right? Well, you got, you got the president himself saying that. <laughs> so that really is a sort of the official inauguration of of the of the third turning, right? Even at the various highest levels, we don't believe in that social order that we used to impose. Don't believe in institutions. So now um, we're, you know, you said earlier, um, you know, we're still kind of that that unraveling, that third turning mood. And according to the theory, we'll, well, we're, we're, we'll the, be transitioning the, the to the mood, fourth turning. The, yeah, the mood is still kind of third turning-ish, but I do think that in terms of dating eras, we're definitely into the fourth turning now. Uh, and I, I would date that really beginning in 2008. I think uh, the election of Barack Obama, but even more importantly, the global financial crisis has caused a, re- a real rupture in the in in the social mood, which has taken us this year to you know Trump versus Clinton, and God knows what we're going to see now. But the but the realignment of political parties, which is now going on, I think one of the most rapid and significant realignment of politics we've seen, perhaps since the second, you know, perhaps since the great the Great Depression, you know, with the realignment of politics in the elections of 1932 and 36. This could be as significant of that as that. Uh, parallels that come to mind to me are the death of the Whig Party just before the Civil War uh, in the 1850s, uh, when the Whigs completely disintegrated. Uh, the, the Democrats took over, and then the Whigs recombined in the late 1850s as the Republican Party, which obviously 
barely won in, 19, in 1860 with Abraham Lincoln and then went on to rule the country for the next 70 years, right? So this is also characteristic of a fourth turning, radical and rapid political realignments. Um, and we're seeing one right before our eyes. Right. And we'll get into that later on. We'll, we'll, we'll do some prophecy at the end. Um, Cause I think it's just, it's ah, just it's prophecy, prophecy yeah. right? You're going to be Teresius <laughs> here, the blind prophet. Um, so, okay, let's, we talked about the turnings. Let's talk about how the generations um, connect to these turnings. So first let's define, what do you mean by a generation? How do you determine a generation? Well, a cohort? generation, a generation is a group of people born about roughly the length of a, of a phase of life. You know, we really define phase of life by, well, you know, when you can read our books, you read about in depth, but it's really a, a, a period in your life, just chronologically, when you have kind of both either biologically or socially defined roles. So childhood, for instance, is the, is the period between being born and coming of age fully as an adult, which has roughly been a little bit over than 20 years through much of American history. Uh, that period has probably actually come down a little bit um, from, you know, actually being allowed to, to, to um, uh, well, it, it's, I shouldn't say it's come down. It's come, it's come down and gone back up. It's, it's fluctuated a bit. But, but, the, but, but that ability to be able to assume adult roles, you know, for instance, in voting and war and truly being, you know, uh, uh, perceived as an adult member is, is certainly a, a very fundamental timing period. It's roughly around 20 years, a little more than 20 years. And then, you know, another phase of life would be what we call young adulthood, which takes you from, you know, your early 20s up to your mid-40s. And typically the mid-40s is when the the next phase of life begins, which is midlife. This is usually the age at which people are deemed competent to serve as, as the highest leaders, you know, of institutional life. Uh, and that's, that's usually you know, the Constitution says you can become a president at 35, but we haven't had many in their, in their late 30s, early 40s, right? Right. I mean, typically, midlife is considered the threshold for, for that kind of, you know, stature. And then, and then we have a period of, uh, of, of uh, often pinnacle in terms of, of, of leadership, but in general, a, a certain withdrawal from public activity, which is elderhood, which is over age 65. So here's the thing, is that, and when a big event hits, it affects people in different ages, depending upon their social role. I mean, a good example is, is Pearl Harbor Sunday, right? And when a big emergency hits, suddenly the whole social mood may change overnight, as it did, you know, on, on December 7th, right, 1941. So how do different people in different age brackets react to that? Well, it they react differently depending upon their age-related social roles. If you are just under the age of, um, of you know, serving actively, for instance, in war, uh, what's the message? Stay safe, get under the table, don't say anything, don't interfere, you're going to be tightly protected, people are going to take care of you, but just, you know, uh, don't, don't interfere with anything. Um, and, and if you're just over the age, you're going to have a very different role rise up and meet the enemy, you know what I mean? Organize, uh, you know, get, get the whole, you know, help get this whole country moving. And if you're, again, in midlife, a very different kind of, and, and actually that was a time at which the, the, you know, that, that hit, it sort of really did kind of divide generations at the time. And, and you think of the silent generation, which would have been, you know, those who were you know, basically still in childhood, 
on, on, you know, in 1941, the GI generation was all in young adulthood and, you know, they were the ones who went off to war. Um, and, uh, the, the lost generation, which was all in midlife and they were the midlife generals of that war. They were the, uh, you know, the Omar Bradley's and the George Patton's and the Dwight Eisenhower's and they, they became the elder leaders of the American high later on. And then you had the, in elderhood, the missionary generation of, uh, you know, Henry Stimson and FDR and Einstein, and they, they provided a different role. <clears throat> but here's the thing, is that just like turnings, which arise in a, in a certain sequential order, these generations themselves, right, since they're shaped by their location of history, if history has a pattern, so do generations have a pattern. They almost have to when you stop and think about it. So, for example what we call a prophet archetype generation, which would be a generation like boomers, is always born right after a great crisis, right? They are always the post-crisis babies, and they certainly were even why we call them the baby boom, right? There was a big boom that started in, in 1946, both in the economy and in hospital maternity wards. And that was, um, those are the post-crisis children. And they always, they fought, tend to follow a very similar life cycle script. They're increasingly indulged as kids. They come of age during a time of the awakening, the awakening era. They tend to become increasingly kind of moralistic leaders in midlife. And ultimately, this kind of generation takes the country into and through the next crisis as elder leaders, as senior leaders. And I believe that's what's happening today. Other generations have a different relationship with history. For example, the, the, what we call the hero archetype, like the GI generation, they're, they're increasingly protectively raised as children. Uh, they come of age during the emergency, and then they go on as, as, um, as uh, you know, they enter midlife during that post-crisis high period, and they become resolute, you know, collective defenders of the social order. And then as they enter old age, they're attacked by the next great awakening fired by the young. So that's kind of their locate. We've seen that repeatedly with these kinds of generations. Um, in fact, one of the most um, one of the most uh, uproarious and uh, 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 colorful awakenings in American history was the Second Great Awakening uh, that you know gave rise to you know uh, Emerson and Thoreau and Longfellow and Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis. That what we call the Transcendental Generation. There were you know, commune founders and and uh, religious prophets. You know, they gave rise to everything from uh, you know everything from the Mormon Church to Christian Science. <clears throat> completely evangelized um, both you know the the northern and southern states in the in the 1830s and 40s. An, an amazing generation of of, of again uh, feminist poets. Uh, just a a a a, a cataclysmic generation in the culture. And they, they, in their turn, you know, took us into the civil war uh, as they grew older. These, these things are, these are, these are patterns. And, and, and that's kind of what we track. Two other kinds of generations worth mentioning are what we call the nomad archetype. These are the children of the great awakening periods. Um, This would be a good example of that would be generation X, right? We talk about the, you know, 60s and 70s as being this awakening, 
well, who were the children of that, right? Who were actually, who were the actual children, right? Well, they were, they were Gen Xers, right? Growing up at a time of maximum family disorder, maximum underprotection of children. And, and they take their survivalism, their individualism, independence, and, and, and survivalism and, and um, self-reliance with them then coming of age into the subsequent their turning. Um, and then one, one final archetype may be worth mentioning <clears throat> is what we call the artist archetype. And that would be a good example of that would be the silent generation. These are the children of crises, very heavily protected as children. And, uh, and they come of age <clears throat> almost always in American history. They're the ones that come of age, actually come of age right after the crisis. Uh, and they are typically extremely risk averse, extremely conformist. Uh, and, you know, they, 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 they're dutiful. You know, the older generations have just taken the, the, the country through this huge crisis. And the last thing they want to do is upset the social order. It's, it's very interesting, in fact, that the very origin of the term silent generation, it's actually a, a famous Time Magazine editorial that came out in 1951 about, you know, how these kids just seemed, you know, they're, they're, they, they seem so, um, they seem so cautious. You know, their, their, their first questions on job interviews were about pension plans. All they wanted to do is just get married young and lock in everything, lock in all these long-term future facts about their life at the earliest possible ages. So, um, Anyway, a very distinctive generation, very interesting generation in their own right for what they've given to our culture, and and today a very affluent generation. Uh, there are people when you think about people today in their late seventies and eighties, you're looking at you know the silent generation in elderhood, um, very affluent, very well educated, very well mannered, strong middle class. Uh, these are not things we're going to associate with seniors, you know, at all twenty years from now. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. 
So we've been using factory meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time uh, to to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com slash manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com slash manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. So yeah, so this this is a great example. So I mean, I guess the next question is, is I guess it's not a statement, not a question, but a statement. So like just to clarify, these generational archetypes, they, they follow a pattern because these turnings follow a pattern. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, an archetype will it's, manifest it's a, itself. It's, a, it's it, a cycle. It's a cycle that goes two ways. It's both a cause and effect. Right. So for instance, each generation is shaped by history young, right? That's obvious. Um, you know, you, you, you're born or you, you grow up during a period of war or awakening, whatever it is, it, it shapes you. <clears throat> but then later on, as, as, as midlife parents and leaders, you then go on to shape history. Do you see what I mean? So, so it's, a, it's, it's a full circle of causation here. Right. But and, um, I guess what I was getting at too is that th- these archetypes ne- ne- aren't necessarily going to manifest themselves exactly the same way in different time periods. I, I guess a great one would be the the, the prophet generation, right? This that happens, that comes to age during an awakening. Right. Like you said, the most recent one, 
Well, you talked about the second great awakening was an example of a prophet generation. So you had all these ri- right. creation rise of uh, spiritual leaders, the evangelization of of American culture. Um, but then the second, the following awakening happened in the 1960s, and that manifested itself differently. But there was again sort of that same ethos of spirituality, inner values, etc. Actually, the following awakening is the third great awakening, which occurred in the very last decade of the of the 19th century. So, you know, that was actually the missionary generation, uh, just born right after the Civil War. So you're missing one of the examples of a, of a strong missionary generation. Look, it, it is true that there, look, for all of these things, you overlay secular trends, long-term trends. And one of those trends is, I mean, you can think of something long-term trends, or technology gets fancier and, and, and more capable, right? We tend to live longer, you know, generation after generation. Um, and there's no question that in the context of these awakening eras, the the um, the con- the context in which an awakening plays out is increasingly less, you know, organized religion, and it's increasingly other areas of the culture. And I think that's where you were going to when you're right. talking about the, uh, the late '60s and '70s. But when you look at the underlying, so this and this is the thing. This, this is we have to back up a little bit and look at the underlying human drivers, right? The the rage against authority. The, um, the, the liberation of the individual, the quest for inner authenticity. It's amazing that if you go back and look, which I have, and I'm, I've read all the literature surrounding even Jonathan Edwards' awakenings, you know, Northampton in, in Massachusetts in the late eight, uh, 1730s. But you look at all of those elements, they were all there, all of them, you know, strikingly, right? And, and what were these traditional awakenings? you know, all in the name of, you know, obviously Christian churches at that time, but very few Americans at that time who weren't Christian. Um, and, and you look at what were the underlying elements, all of those exactly to a T. I mean, those basic social and emotional drivers are behind it. So I look <clears throat> to make sense of generations. You need to look beyond the outer context, you know, the outer form of the institution the outer forms of technology, and look instead at what purposes are the te- are the technologies serving, right? Um, and that's what gets. And I, I was I get so many calls from the media about um, you know everyone wants to know about millennials say, and you know so they ask me you know what how's the how's the iPhone reshaping millennials? You know how is social media reshaping millennials? Or you know. Uh, Twitter or, or 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 Facebook or Snapchat or whatever it is, and how did and their their perspective is always how does technology shape generation? And I, my usual response is is you really need to think causally in a different way about technology and generations. You should be asking the reverse question: How are these generations shaping the technology? Now that's an interesting question, and now that's a question that can actually allow you to make forecasts. So to see, for instance, that so much of the social tech, social, the social media, the advent of social media, was shaped and embraced by millennials, you know, and mean prated by millennials. You just think of, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, for example. You begin to realize it's not like older people forcing this technology down the throats of young people who otherwise wouldn't want it. But it's rather young people, even when they were, you know, back in the 1990s, the old kids, they were all on their... Uh, 
you know, eChat. <laughs> We'd come home and they'd go on their personal computers to eChat. So older generations are wondering, how the hell are they doing? You know, why are they doing that, right? Um, but the point is, is that if it, they take whatever is possible in the technology and exploit that which serves their generational need. You see what I mean? Right. And we don't pay enough. We don't pay enough attention to that. Um, uh, generations will reshape the technology to suit their own purposes. And turnings will, will the social mood and the turning will reshape the technology to, to suit its own, its own purposes. I don't think many people were predicted back in the early 1990s that so much of our use of public internet technology would basically be to uh, set up, you know, billions of cameras in every public place uh, just to monitor people all the time. You know, we always thought it was going to liberate the individual in all this stuff. And then ultimately, here we have a society in which any individual can be tracked down for the sake of what? What matters in a fourth turning? Social order, right? Make sure that malefactors are caught. So there we are. There we are. Well, I'm curious. Um, we've talked about how these turnings and these generational cycles can influence, um, you know, child rearing, um, things like that. But I'm curious. This is the Art of Manliness podcast, so let's get into that. Do the, does your generational theory tell us anything about moods towards gender differences between generations? You know, they do. That, that's a really interesting question, and we, um, you know, I'm sure you're familiar, we do talk a little bit about that in, in Generations in the Fourth Turning. Um, uh, we find that actually in, in Fourth Turnings, when you, when you look broadly, you know, from the very beginning of the Fourth Turning to the very end, those, these periods are generally periods in which um, gender role differences widen. Um, and during awakenings, gender role differences close, Okay. That's just a, that's a first approximation. Um, and you, you think about it, what, what really influenced the boomer generation? What, what, what kind, of gen, kind of exaggerated gender role kind of had the big influence of boomers growing up? You know, little, little kids in the, in the 50s and then coming of age in the 60s and 70s. It was the Superman, right? It was the GI generation Superman. You think of all of the GI generation actors of that period you're talking about um you know whether you're talking about uh you know gosh you know uh, gregory peck and charlton heston and Sidney poitier john wayne just got on the roster of male actors in the gi generation you named one that wasn't a man's man <laughs> what i mean right. i just mean they were all just men men there's a real exaggerated and you even saw that in the presidential campaign in 1960, Kennedy against Nixon. It, it was almost phallic, like, you know, who had the longer missiles? I mean, and, and here are these guys who were, who were taking a certain kind of uh, masculinity and, and myth of masculinity and really exaggerating that in a way which I think you could say, um, as, as many things did during the awakening, the boomer generation reacted very negatively to. And so much of what we saw, you know, guys growing long hair, singing in high voices. I mean, all the stuff that drove the GI generation crazy and, and drove them, by the way, to set up their retirement communities in, in the middle of the desert, you know, places like Senior World and Sun City where they just wouldn't have to listen to this horrible, you know, um, unmanly culture that their children are creating, right? So 
this this is this was a very important part of of boomers. It's important part of the you know women's liberation and 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 what we now call second wave feminism that 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 came out of that. I think today, um, you know, we we've we've come a little bit full full circle on that. And it, what's interesting to me is to see millennials today growing up and sort of what's the big sort of iconic. Um, sort of exaggerated gender role that people are most familiar with today, you know, in the movies and in so much of the, um, so much of the culture it's, and, 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 and what has been so instrumental in shaping this increasingly protective environment and, and, and more community and more social oriented environment for the millennial generation. It's not the super mom. It's not the super uh, dad. It's not the superman. It's the super mom. Right. And I, and I think, when you look at millennials and you see particularly the precocious achievements of millennial women, um, you know, they're now outnumbering men as undergraduates, uh, probably around, you know, 60% to 40%. When you look at those who are actually completing their degrees, they're now outdoing men now in attainment of, of uh, graduate degrees. And as young adults, particularly in urban areas, they're, they're, you know, on par with, and in some places actually out earning men. Now, we, we've seen this. I, I know a lot of us have actually looked at this trajectory for progressive cohorts, and it tends to peak in the late 20s, early 30s. And then what you see is the, the women, women's wages, even among, you know, if you just isolate even college-educated men and women, women's wages tend to decline in the 30s because more of them are getting married and more of them, you know, to some extent, are one way or another compromised and following their career. But it is interesting to look at these revolutionary advances we've seen in just even Title IX, for instance, in colleges where women could participate in sports and so on. And this, this, has, been, this has been challenging to guys, right? So, you know, we've, we've grown up, in, millennials have grown up in a period where the strong female has been celebrated. I mean, this has obviously been kind of ushered in by boomers at the highest level, I think, in a, in a very positive way. And I think it has been a very positive development. <clears throat> but I want to say this, that we've now entered a fourth turning, and I just see history suggests that throughout the periods of fourth turnings, it begins to shift the other way. Um, and, and let me just... Um, let me just give one interesting insight into how I think this is gonna this is gonna play out. If you had talked to women back in the nineteen seventies, say, about what they wanted more in men, right? I'm not talking about young women, say you know, boomers in their twenties. What did they want more in men? I'll I'll tell you what they were saying at the time. Lots of books on this, lots of magazine articles, interviews, anyone looked through that period remembers. We wanted women wanted men that were a little bit more the Alan Alba type. You remember that? Right. Sensitive. Sensitive caring, nice guy. You know. Sensitive nice guys, not not establishment guys, not guys who were just always achieving and you know, just just charging, you know, trying to achieve in that in that man's world. And they wanted nicer guys. They wanted, yeah, guys who would open up, guys a little more emotional, softer, more sense, all of that. Um and there's a there's a rule which is that Men, young men ultimately become what young women want. <laughs> and that's just my, that's my own kind of observation, uh, you know, looking around my own life and just looking historically. And, and men, to some extent, became 
became that. I mean, in a, in a very palpable way, um, you know, men became more like that, I think, because that's, you know, men, men, um, men, men follow the, the, the reward pattern that women set out for them. Uh, so here's my insight on that, because I've actually talked recently, and we're looking at surveys now on this. We're looking at you know, talking to millennial women about guys. And you may have done this. So, you know, if you have observations here, you, you chime in yourself. I'll okay. tell you something. I've talked to a lot of millennial women, and I can't find any of them that wants a guy to be more sensitive, kinder, you know, to sort of pull back on the achievement side of his life, right, and just be a nicer guy. Exactly the contrary. I'm, I'm encountering millennial women everywhere. I said, I want a guy to step up to the plate. I want him to be ready for prime time. I want some drive in his life. I can't find a guy who wants to achieve. I, I hear that. I hear that so often, so repeatedly today. Um, and, and so a lot of millennial women are wondering, you know, how, how can I find a guy? How can I find a guy that will give me kind of what I need in my life? You know, I don't want to be the only achiever. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, and I, I think this is interesting because I think it's very suggestive. Uh, again, as I said before, I think what, what women, what young women want is definitely a social leading indicator. Okay. So we're kind of going back. So they're following that hero archetype. Um, more well, wide, widening of, of gender Obviously, roles. Yeah, it's it's, it's going to look different. You know, the era is different. Everything's different today. But I think we will see something like that emerge. Uh, and and I think um, I think that's because young men will look for ways to fulfill that role, which is the role in which that you know they are now invited to play in a way that which that they weren't twenty thirty years ago. Okay, that was fantastic. Well, you just got a little bit prophetic there. Let's get way more prophetic here. Um, so you wrote The Fourth Turning in 1997. Um, you argued that a, we were due a fourth turning crisis by the middle of the OOs. And you just said earlier that the financial crisis of 2008 was probably that crisis that set off the fourth turning. Yeah, the, the catalyst. Yeah. The catalyst. And, you know, these turnings last about 20 years. So we're, you know, this will last, you know, about, yeah, till two thousand. Middle of two, probably yeah, but about twenty-two years. So you know, this may last to the end of the twenty twenties. So you know, we're we're still we're, we're we're probably not even you know we're not halfway. We're almost certainly not halfway through yet. So there's there's a lot of time, and typically the intensity picks up over time. You know, so you know, don't be fooled by the uh, extremely low vol- volatility and high valuations in uh, financial markets right now. Uh, I think it's a calm before the storm. I think there's a lot more coming in the in the years just just ahead. So, how do you think the, these generational constellations are going to play out through the crisis? So, I'm talking about we have millennials now in uh, young adulthood. We have uh, yeah. uh, we have a generation that are in childhood, so like my kids' age, my kids five and right. three. Um, we have Generation X, who are that nomad generation. They're in midlife now. They're moving so, into midlife. So we have you right. know, things like President Obama is, would be a great example of that and some other uh, leaders. And then we have the boomers who are now in elderhood. They're in their 60s. Some of them are in their 70s. Yeah, they're, they're, 
that kind of each of these generations is moving into the next phase of life. You know, so boomers are entering elderhood. Um, millennials are entering, uh, you know, extras are entering midlife. Millennials are entering young adulthood. Exactly. And, and that's exactly what happens. Each turning is, in a sense, triggered by each new archetype moving into a new phase of life. So, you know, this is very much like what happened in the 30s uh, when you had that same kind of constellational shift going on. So how is this going to play? I mean, like, so if the millennials are the hero generation, like how will they be heroes during this crisis? And I think that's hard for a lot of people to envision because they, the millennials get a lot of flack for being, you know, they think they're special, they're conformist, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how, how is this going to, well, how will rem- they? Remember, remember that no one said anything about the GIs being the greatest generation until the very end of the last fourth turning. Okay, it, in the late 1930s, uh, everyone thought of young adults in America. They they looked on them with kind of pity. You know, they they didn't have many jobs. They were joining these big idealistic labor union movements, and they were certainly galvanizing a certain kind of collectivism in America. They they voted by huge majority, huge overwhelming um, majorities for FDR and the New Deal in in 1932 and 1936. Uh, they were huge participants in the growing union movement, particularly the CIO and the sit-down strikes and so on. They were the ones who wore all those NRA badges. I mean, they loved the idea of of the collective, okay, much more than older generations did. They embraced that. But no one thought of them as being powerful. They were, in fact, just like millennials today, everyone thought these kids being much more protected. They had enjoyed all of the new child protection of of the progressive era, you know, all these, these new packaged foods with vitamins and all these new government agencies to protect kids. And they thought of them, in fact, one worry going into World War II was that these kids were too soft. They were too protected. I don't know if anyone recalls, a, a, what I think George C. Scott's greatest movie was, was Patton. Right. <laughs> I don't know, have you ever seen the movie oh, yeah. Patton? Well, just, just listen to the first speech, Okay. That first speech by a lost generation general to all of these young GIs was exactly like an exer today trying to put grit in the millennials. <laughs> I mean, listen to that speech, how he basically just kicks ass. And why did Patton almost be completely cashiered and, and, and you know, demoted as a general um, during the campaign in, in, um, in Sicily? He slapped a GI soldier, caused a huge furor, and and really got him demoted. I mean, he he was our best general, in my opinion, and the Germans could not believe that this guy was being demoted <laughs> demoted for that. But that caused he crossed the line there, right? He actually physically attacked one of these precious younger kids that America really kind of favored, you know? They had mixed minds. They're kind of soft, but we really like them, too. We don't want them <laughs> to be brutalized, right? And this, this, these are how archetypes play out, because you see the same thing happening today. I talk with Xers all the time, and they're saying, my God, there's no grit in these kids. They don't know adversity. They, don't, they didn't live the hard knocks like I did. I was kicked to the curb as a kid. No one ever invited me or onboarded me into the workplace. You know what I mean? I just had to scrap around and, and try to make things work and look at these kids. You know, we got to do this for them and that for them. And, you know, their, their, their voice dripping with sarcasm, right? 
this is, we replay these moments. This is not the first time we've been here. And we judge the GI generation by what they did at the very end of that. Okay, yeah, they went off to war and, and they managed, with the help of older generals and older generations, to conquer half the world. You know, that's, that's a pretty amazing feat, right? Right. Um, and then they came home and they built the suburbs and the interstate highways and they that generation poured more concrete than any other generation in American history. They built all these dams, which boomers are actually trying to destroy. I don't know if you see, but boomers are actually carrying down these dams, <laughs> trying to get nature to flow again, right? Um, but, but anyway, they were an extraordinary generation. And in retrospect, we, we, we create a myth of this generation. We, we do believe that we live in the civic shadow of that Promethean generation, right, which created so much of the institutional infrastructure that we enjoy today. And here's one other kind of interesting thing about history, and, and it gets back to kind of awakenings and, and, and crises, that typically we tend to date the era we're living in when it comes to the outer world from the last crisis, and we tend to date the era we're living in in the culture from the last awakening. So it's very interesting, you know, if you, if you look at the, you know, the IMF or, you know, Congress or anyone talking about American laws or American constitutional structure, we talk about post-war America. We still do today, right? Post-war, you know, after World War II, you know, when we built up this very new way of, of you know, running our economy with our government and everything else. But when we talk about the culture in America, we usually talk about since the 60s, right? Right. I mean, that's when... All the new rules have so, so the very these these turnings these these endpoints actually define our kind of self understanding of the very era we're living in. Um, we don't think what's going to change what we're moving into with the rest of this fourth turning is not a time at which we're going to change our culture drastically. You know that that happened in the in the seventies. It's going to be a while before that really switches. You know drastically again. But what we are going to do is we're in a period now we're going to change the outer world. And, and that's, that's really the story of, of, uh, of the rest of this, the current era we're living through. Right. So I guess the millennials might be using technology to somehow revolutionize government participation or structure. I, I, I think they're already underway. You know, I think uh, the very way citizens will use and interact with technology completely bypassing and rendering obsolete some of these old institutions, these completely sclerotic institutions we have today at all levels of government. And I, and I think these are going to be ways in which we will much more effectively have communities, you know, emp- empowering themselves and, and creating a better world. I think that when it comes to our public infrastructure, it is so out of date. I mean, it is, you just look, if there's one thing that has not changed much in our world, right? We all talk about these little personal gadgets that we have that are so amazing, right? But what hasn't changed? It's everything we share publicly. Our tunnels, our harbors, our highways, our, our housing developments. It's utterly unchanged uh, in the last, really, since World War II, right? Um, it's all kind of creaky and old and ossified and this, these are the eras in which we change that stuff. And I think there's going to be a, a lot of, a lot of change coming up, but I, I, 
if you were to ask me, I mean, it's just asking me to look at, I think, um, I'm looking for, you know, when you, you look at, at particularly further catalysts of rapid <clears throat> kind of political change, institutional change, the two, the two primary motive forces in history, and usually one leads into the other and reinforces the other is basically economic crisis and war, right? These are the two things that are kind of like two pistons of, of crisis eras. And I think the one that is yet to be fully reverberate is is the economy. Um, I think the economy is way out of adjustment. You know, with this quantitative easing and ZERP and NERP and, you know, going into negative interest rates now and crushing the banks, uh, the entire global economy is now completely unsustainable steroids. And I think we have not seen the other foot drop on that. Um, so that's what I'm looking at first. And I believe that it always is true with the, with these kind of economic crises that they impel and tend to, um, um, and tend to, uh, um, push forward certain conflicts in the world. And you know, we see so many areas of the world today, you know, from, from Eastern Europe to the Middle East to South China Sea and, you know, places where we could have real, you know, places, let me put it this way, from a seismological view, we see tensions rising, right? And and these will be breaking points. And don't forget, the entire world is seeing similar kinds of generational changes. Um, the leader around the world, leaders who remember World War II are no longer anywhere in power. And you look, for instance, in Asia, you know, with Shinzo Abe and, you know, Narendra Modi and, and, and um, you know, uh, uh, Pak Gunhe in, in South Korea, all of these people, they are, uh, and you know, obviously, uh, you know, Xi Jinping in China, these are all people who have no memory of World War II. They're all kind of similar to sort of a boomer archetype. These are leaders who are infusing their nations with a new sense of confidence, a new sense of nationalism. Uh, they don't just necessarily want to uh, be be self-effacing leaders who want to fit in, and, and it's it's creating rising tensions. Um, uh, and we, you know, we, we will see. You know, we we will see how that plays out. But combine those rising tensions with an acute economic downturn, you've got real problems. And one last thing I should say, and that is that the problems of a fourth turning, as they multiply and and become more severe typically tend to all join together into one big problem. You know, you remember the 1930s, the problem was the economy, threat of deflation, falling fertility, a lot of the things that we worry about today. You know, we could, we just can't boost employment. And, the, you know, the economy then sank again in 1937. And it's just despair. I mean, we know we can't, we didn't understand how to do it. And then in the 30s, of course, fascism started breaking out all over the world, right? And so, by the time we got into the middle of World War II, it all became one big problem, right? So we needed to create democracies around the world. We needed to create the United Nations, the IMF, the World Bank, you know, Bretton Woods, the whole new monetary. We needed to solve everything, everything across the board, economic, geopolitical. Everything was going to be solved at this new point of institutional creation, which happened Actually, even during World War II is when we first started negotiating that stuff. I think Bretton Woods was actually, well, the war was still raging. But when the war was over, all of this wet cement hardened. 
that became the new institutional infrastructure for the new for the new for the new saculum, you know, for this new era. Right. Um, we're we're entering a period again where things are going to be crumbling, and we're going to have to shape 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 new institutions again. And it, and it's chronologically close. I mean, we're already in the era in which that's going to happen. And so, I mean, in the the previous fourth turnings that you've analyzed, it, it always works out, right? The Revolutionary War was a crisis point, and it worked out. We founded America. Silver War was a crisis point, and uh, we were able to save the Union. World War II, the Great Depression, that worked out great. Um, America became a superpower, and we became an economic powerhouse. But can fourth turnings turn out poorly? Like, maybe it doesn't go out, doesn't go the way you think? We've, we've looked, you know, more recently, we look around the world at, at these patterns. And obviously, many, many society, many, many nations and societies can be crushed by fourth turnings. Or certainly, you know, their political achievements, you know, repudiated and, and their, 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 their constructions torn down. Um, and it's interesting it's kind of a nice lesson in that it's, it's, it's both similar to and, and some ways different than a victorious fourth turning. Um, what's similar, interestingly, is that the, the, the civic achievements of even a losing nation, for instance, in a great war, tend to be pretty enduring. Um, the, the difference is, of course, is that it, it, is, it, it surrenders, it's forced to give up much of what it created. But the actual impact of that generation on governance continues to be pretty dominant enough so to actually propel an awakening, um, you know, 20, 25 years after the end of the crisis. A good example is take a look at, uh, take a look at Germany, right? Well, it was definitely a loser in that struggle and it was occupied by allies and so on. But the generation that fought in World War II continued to be a very strong governing generation. And they had the same 60s rebellion, you know, that we did. In fact, it was a lot more violent. They had like the Bader Meinhof gang, and you know they had they had young people that are out there actually, you know, blowing up and and murdering business executives and, and government leaders. You know, back in the seventies, it was a um, it was it was a, it was a, a more serious <laughs> version of the Weathermen. Right? Right, right. We had a little of it here, but but that was really that, that was a couple steps further than what we had. In fact, throughout a lot of Europe. Uh, you had the same, you know, in, in the whole 68, you know, les 68 hours, what they call them in, in, in France, the Achtensechsiger in Germany. This was the 68ers, very powerful generational reaction against those who had, who had uh, taken Europe through World War II. And you'd have to say, certainly in Germany, and to some extent even in France, you wouldn't say these are exactly, you know, victorious you know, France was ignominiously defeated in 1941, and they kind of came back in the baggage train of the Allies, right? Um, and and certainly the, the Germany, the Axis powers were crushed. But we we've looked at that. I I think it. You're right. Most of America's fourth turnings have entered have been resolved very you know very favorably. Ultimately. Um, I'd say the only partial exception I would say was the Civil War. The Civil War is enormously destructive. Um, one out of every ten, you know, soldier-aged males uh, in the North uh, were fatalities, casualties. One out of every four in the South. 
I mean, we have, we have had no war anywhere in the New World. I shouldn't say anywhere in the New World. Certainly nowhere in North America of that kind of scale ever, right? So that, as, as a share of the population, no. There's been nothing in American history that even comes close to that. That was a horrendous conflict. And I often ask people, you know, and, and the next time we had a fourth turning, uh, we invented a, um, you know, we basically got all of the smartest scientists in America, put them on the Manhattan Project to design a weapon of mass destruction, right? And, and we used it, right? Um, I haven't asked people in, when I talk to audiences, I say, gee, you know, if we had had a weapon of mass destruction in, you know, 1864, would we have used it? Would the Union have used it? I, I think the question answers itself. You know, right. of course we would have used it. You know, come on. Right. Um, and it it does it does focus you on how the mood. Should, we don't we don't understand these periods when we stand outside of them. You know, we look back and we say, "My God, world war! How do we do these various things?" It's like you know, interning Japanese Americans and these things. We we don't we just can't put ourselves in the mindset of what's what it's like to actually be in that. And and the the sense the palpable sense of public mobilization, and joined by fear, um, and we we understand outside of it, it seems a little incomprehensible. And that's how history helps us because we can re-enter these periods because we know sooner or later we will back be back in there ourselves. Right. And so I mean, I guess the, the if even if a, a fourth turning turns out unfavorably, the cycle will still continue. Like you'll still have an awakening. It's like a, yeah, we we do think so. I mean, you know, I am not a historical determinist. So you know, if you wanted to say, I can imagine, you know, total catastrophes of, uh, you know, uh, uh, whether it's a super virus or an asteroid or you know, uh, or or you know, Yosemite, you know, the caldera finally goes up, right. you know, and puts us into a global winter for the next twenty years. Yeah, of course. I mean, that, that could change every. I mean, you know, everything. I, I'm not. I'm not stupid about any of this. I mean, I. I I'm just going by what I observe, and I, I realize, of course, like all complex processes in nature, it doesn't have an exact timing. It's not like a planet revolving the sun. It's more like. It's more like a. It's more like a flower and the timing that it takes to grow, and then and then and then unfold, or, or when seasons come. Sometimes they come earlier, sometimes they come later, they're harsher, they're not as harsh. Uh, but nonetheless, like many complex systems, uh, there, is, there is a pattern, there is an order, and, and, and this order is a, is, is, a, is a great organizing principle for thinking, you know, for thinking about the future. Um, you could, uh, yeah, you could, you could just kill the flower, or just, you know, bulldoze over nature and you say, well, you know, we, we, uh, you know, got rid of that cycle and <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I, so I'm not, I'm not, you know, uh, I, I'm just observing what I observe. I would say that to completely eradicate this kind of, um, these kinds of rhythms in our culture and this kind of way in which generations learn from their predecessors is enormously powerful. Uh, I think to change it would require something to, to truly efface it, you know, for, for a period of decades would require something 
truly catastrophic. Right, like a that's, mass kill-off, like an asteroid or something like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, something that, you know, some, some horrifying thing. Right. Well, Neil, this has been a fascinating discussion. And, like, we've literally scratched the surface of this. I mean, there's so much more we can get into detail with every these, all these things. But where can people learn more about your books and your work? Well, you know, I, I there's a lot of, uh, you know, I do a, I do a you know column in in Forbes that can kind of talk about contemporary events, current events. I have a lot out there, you know, on the web. Uh, I think if people are sort of interested in in sort of our, our theory of history, I think you mentioned the two books. One is Generations, uh, which Bill and I wrote in uh, 1991. You can find that on Amazon. The other one is called The Fourth Turning, an American Prophecy. That was written in 1997. Um, we have many other books on, on, on other generational topics, but I would say those are fundamental. And, and, and I would just say, keep your eye out for, you know, a new version of generations. I, I do have plans actually to come out with a, with a new generations and fourth turning together that we could kind of bring everything up to where we are today. I, I get asked that a lot, obviously. I think people want to know, so when did the fourth turning start? Where are we? How are these different generations aging and all of that? So I would love to do that. And I, I do expect, I would say people should look for that within the next year. Uh, that's probably the, the single biggest project that I would like to undertake at this point. Well, I can't wait for that to come out. Well, Neil Hal, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're welcome. It was a pleasure as well. My guest today was Neil Howe. He's the author of the book, Generations and the Fourth Turning. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Check it out. It's a really fascinating read. You can also find more information about Neil's work at lifecourse.com. And make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash Howe, that's H-O-W-E, for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever else you use to listen to the podcast. It helps us out a lot. As always, I thank you for continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.